Welcome to What I Wish I Knew by Dental Head Start, your weekly mentoring session thanks to cpdjunkie.com.au. Hey everyone and welcome to the What I Wish I Knew podcast by Dental Head Start. Retention, orthodontic retention. This podcast is so good. It is literally full of little golden nuggets about wires, about um, removable uh, retainers. Um, For those of you who do ortho and they get to the end and everything looks great and we have to bond a wire, there are so many little things, like little questions that come up, like how do I make sure this stays? What kind of wire do I use? Should I use a zigzag wire? Why did my wire come off? Where am I going to find room in the occlusion? Dr. Kata Zhu breaks this all down. Uh, I love how she starts by, you know, sharing with us her story about how a lot of her retainer wires came off. And I confess, you know, it happened to me a lot as well. And I was thinking, why is this happening? So um, there's nothing worse than having a patient come back and, you know, their midline diastomas opened up again or the tooth that was rotated has, you know, shown relapse even with a bonded wire. So this podcast is all about how to minimize the risks of these things happening. I got tons and tons out of it. Enjoy. Katie, retainers, retention. We're at the end of our ortho treatment, whether we did clear aligners or fixed. Talk to us about some of the challenges of retention how did it evolve the history of of the retention (laughs) protocols the history I'm not the best person to talk to you about history about the retention protocol but uh, retention is something that is usually not focused on a great deal because we focus on before treatment we focus on treatment planning diagnostics how to execute how to finish and by the time you're done with all of that, um, very, very little attention is paid to the actual retention part. But for a patient, they don't really see a lot of that going through. So they think, okay, so I've paid X amount of money, and why are my teeth not straight anymore? And that is a massive problem. So retention is equally as important as all the other parts of orthodontics. Um, we know that it doesn't matter where you move the teeth. It doesn't matter whether or not you have wisdom teeth. The teeth will always move unless all your teeth are ankylosed or unless the person's dead. The tooth, the teeth, everything is always going to move. And that is because our periodontal support, our cheeks, our tongue, our face, everything is changing. And all of that influences the pressure on the individual teeth and the pressure on the bite. So it is not unexpected that your teeth will also adapt to natural changes. So retention is aimed at stopping what's naturally physiological so that the patients are satisfied long-term with the results. And retention comes in many, many, many different forms. The earliest form of retainers, um, it was a very, very scary looking device that very roughly held the teeth roughly in the right spot. 
Now, in this day and age, that's obviously no longer acceptable. So we need to look at retention that holds the alignment 100% perfect, unless you've got changes that you actually want to do. We need a system that is going to preserve all of it long term. So that's where things like fixed retainers come in, indefinite retainer where comes in, a retainer subscription comes in, um, active you know, preemptive IPR comes in. So there's lots and lots of different things. Obviously, the fixed retainers, um, that's a pretty common one in a lot of orthodontic practices now. It helps patients maintain the end result. And on top of the fixed, they often still get a removable retainer of some form. The types of removable retainers, there are so many out there. The most common one at least in Melbourne, is probably the clear Essex retainers, just because patients actually wear them. But you've got all your Hawleys, your bags, your positioners, your donut retainers, there's so many, but they all do the same. Obviously, that's um, patient compliance. And the other methods, you know, you've got people um, actively IPRing the lower incisors, just passing a little IPR strip every few years just so it creates some space so the natural crowding doesn't come back. And in some practices now, um, there are subscriptions for retainers. So every few years, they get a new set of retainers delivered. <laughs> and that is their practice management protocol to prevent relapse from happening. So it's a, it's a complicated topic, um, but that's a little summary of the different methods we have. That is absolutely critical. I think um, um, it is a really important thing to talk about, particularly as there's not one set standard way. It's pretty variable across different practices. I um, do a fair bit of adult clear aligners and I'd say half of my patients have had braces in the past. And it seems like these days the kids and teenagers who are finishing almost all finished with fixed retainers. But in the past, even 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, only some of them had fixed retainers. Why is it that that's the case? I think it's a difference. Um, it comes down to patient expectation. So 10 years ago, 20 years ago, patients with quite severe orthodontic issues usually went ahead with orthodontic treatment. And that's why if you look at the, for example, extraction rates, they used to be quite high all those years ago because the cases were so severe that you had to do extractions. So that was the norm. You had a really complicated malocclusion and took a lot to bring it to a point where it's acceptable. Versus now, you've got patients with minor relapse issues seeking treatment again. You've got patients with what I would call quite perfect teeth wanting to go up that next level and to get better and better. So it all comes down to, to basically what patients expect now. They want absolutely perfect straight teeth forever versus 20 years ago where they would have been quite happy with something that is a big improvement but did not necessarily need to be permanently maintained. And that's probably where that fixed retainer, you know, popularity has come up now. Yeah, that makes sense. 
Do you think you treat both adults and children? Is there a physiological difference or a treatment protocol difference in how you'd approach their retention plan? For the, yeah, look, um, for kids, we retain a little bit differently if they're growing. Um, For example, after phase one treatment, early phase one, I would sometimes glue in a fixed retainer and not have a removable one so that they can still have natural dental facial growth. Um, In the kids who are going through a pubertal growth spurt and you've finished the treatment and they're still growing, we tend to review them for a lot longer. So instead of a typical, you know, it might typical two-year retention phase, we might review them for three, four, five, six, seven years, especially for the class three skeletal cases as well. So for the adults, um, like you said, I do have a good portion of them who have had relapse from previous treatment. So I would be more inclined to do fixed retainers top and bottom and to also give them more than one set of clear Essex retainers to basically make sure they are not requiring treatment for a third time round. So I am a lot more strict with my adult patients and less and less and less strict with the younger ones. I see. Can you walk us through what the exact um, protocol is for a typical um, thing, like at the end of your ortho cases, what is your typical retention protocol? Typical is lower three to three fixed. That's where the relapse will occur. Um, The first spot the relapse will occur. For the upper, I do find that uh, a upper fix often breaks. It's either debonded or it's um, being chewed on or the wire itself actually ends up just breaking and fragmenting away. So I do like to avoid the upper fixed as much as possible. On top of the fixed, I give them a set of clear Essex retainers and we generally keep them in the practice for about two years on retention review. During that two years, if they need more retainers, it's all included in that um, fee that they were quoted at the start. And afterwards, they get the option of getting the Vivera retainers. So that's another three sets to hopefully last them for another five or six years. And that's also a chance to get that occlusion into the cloud. So if they do have minor relapse, we can always organize some more retainers made from their pre-relapse occlusion to hopefully avoid them needing those really, really minor orthodontic treatment to address a single tooth. It's that time of year again. Before June 30, we have to renew our indemnity insurance. And when I look for an insurer, I'm looking for someone who's going to be there when I need their help. They're going to act fast and they're going to be by my side so I can practice with confidence. I get all of that from Dental Protection Limited. What I love about them is that they're more than just an insurer. They're actually here to help us, to give us content and support us with medical legal situations and most importantly, help us avoid these situations. The content they produce is the best content out there from an insurer like them. Renewal notices are out in May. To make sure you get all of these added benefits, sign up by June 30. I can say from personal experience, when you need help, you'll be glad you're with Dental Protection Limited. Thank you, Dental Protection Limited, for supporting me in my career and the Dental Head Start podcast. 
I've been told um, that at the end of, say, Invisalign, that patients need to be wearing their Viveras or night retainers, not just at night, but during the day as well for a period of some months. Is that is that what you do or do you just go straight to nightwear only after their last active aligner? It, it really does depend on how long they've been in treatment. So we know that the periodontal fibers, it takes about a year to remodel. So that first year is the most um, at risk of relapse year. If this treatment has been really quick and we've really, really quickly brought them from a crowded position to a very well aligned position, then I will be a lot more strict with their retainer wear and I'll probably ask them to wear it more full time. Um, compared to a patient where you've done a lot of the alignment and they're still in refinement for a single tooth and you've spent the last six months doing a single tooth or maybe two teeth. In those cases, I'm more than happy for them to drop down to basically nighttime wear because for the last six months, they have been wearing a retainer full time in the form of aligners. So it really does depend. And I really do look at that clincheck to see where they came from, what's been happening with the last um, what is it, the last 20 sets of aligners to give me an idea of what's going forward. Yeah. Do you have any tips for um, midline diastema closure cases? These are notorious for relapsing. Um, any special advice there? Um, if you're doing clear aligners, I always put an IPR, but I don't do it. So that gives fake you a real IPR. fake IPR, yes. Um, so that gives you a nice tight contact, hopefully by the end. With aligners, and those who do aligners a lot, you'll know that the root control is not as great. So unless you can get the root also in the right spot, they will tend to bounce back, bounce open very, very quickly. So in the clincheck, there is a lot of overcorrection. There is fake IPR. There is overcorrection of the root to try and get the teeth position to be as stable as possible. There is also a lot of emphasis on bite opening and not having heavy contacts on your centrals because again that's going to pop the space opened again. So a lot of the stability it comes down to your finishing occlusion and what you've programmed in. When you move into retention for peace of mind I typically do a bonded upper two to well upper one to one really just to hold it as much as possible. I also generally wait until the very, very end to see if a phrenectomy is required. Sometimes when you do a phrenectomy early in treatment, you'll find that space is almost impossible to close completely because of scar tissue. Um, so I tend to wait until the very end and I tell my patients it's going to look a little bit, a little bit funny, a little bit swollen, but we will be able to address it at the end. So at the end, getting it done, I find whatever scar tissue forms, it does help to hold the space closed. And again, on top of that, it's the retainers, the removable ones, whether it's Hawley, whether it's um, Essex, I don't think that really matters. But a lot of that comes down to your first clincheck. Yeah, so night, just nightly wear indefinitely. Yeah, indefinitely. Less and less, but always having the retainers on hand. Yeah, yeah. And what about um, retaining 
anterior open bite cases. So I've had treated some with um, clear aligners and it's worked really well. But it's a vertical, it's largely a vertical movement that's happened. Sometimes I think to myself, how does a retainer retain in the vertical dimension? And I just couldn't get my head around it. So I'm so glad you asked that question. It doesn't retain in a vertical dimension. So let's see if I can keep this simple. I think one of the most unstable movements is extrusion. It's unstable because you can't retain it, not because you can't do it. You can extrude a tooth and often the bone and the gums that comes with it, but there is absolutely nothing you can do to actually retain this thing. So in those cases, we try and get away with them as little anterior extrusion as possible. If it's somebody with a... Um, like a backward smile arc, then those cases you would obviously have to extrude and you just accept it is going to be a bit unstable. But if it's somebody with a fairly nice consonant smile arc, I would tend to intrude the molars, which is a movement that can be held with retainers, and get that molar intrusion to give you the rotation of the mandible to close the bite rather than going the easier approach, which is extruding your incisors, but having the relapse later on. That is the best explanation I've heard for that. But otherwise, there's nothing extra you can do for an anterior open bite case. Not really, unless you wanted to do a fixed lingual from six to six, (laughs) and there's really not much... You can do. I mean, there are there are people who um, permanently leave attachments on, and that gives your retainer a little grip, so it holds it there. But you know, long term, you can't leave patients with these blobs on their teeth. You know, I have this running joke about um, how do you know that a dentist is a dentist? And they're basically people that walk around with attachments on their teeth, but they don't have any aligners. <laughs> That's, that me right That's, That's me right me. now. That's me right now I still can't speak very clearly with my aligners. So it makes it really hard for me to wear it during the day, especially if I'm doing a podcast. I can't be here lisping on all oh, my essays. Like such a hypocrite. We're just like, yeah, you can go about your life as normal. It'll be fine. It's I remember hard. the first, first two days I had my aligners in. I think I was in tears. I had like 10 urofins to get through the the pain but I think I think I'm just maybe maybe you programmed your aligners to do a bit too much my ones hardly do anything like they cause me very little pain but I just can't keep them in because I do so much talking during the day (laughs) it's a massive struggle I'm actually very uncompliant and I've got a tooth that's lagging because I'm not wearing it enough (laughs) At least you're an orthodontist that has like a massive appreciation for what patients go through. (laughs) That was the idea of why I started it. It's 2021. We're used to cloud-based software enhancing and optimising every aspect of our lives. But what about something we use every day? Our dental practice management software. Now imagine something rethought from the ground up designed for intuitiveness, leveraging the capabilities of today's technology. 
something that optimizes our daily workflows and actually meets the changing needs of modern dentists to stay competitive and connected. Principal practice management software is just this, intelligent, efficient, and intuitive. Because it's 2021 and you can expect something more. Go to principal.dental to learn more. Last few questions on retainers. So I've also had a handful of um, retainers that that either break or debond, um, and I've sort of made up my own protocol for how to bond them in a really effective, predictable way. But what's the um, some practical tips for success with bonding fixed lingual retainers? Really funny story. When I first joined. Um, the ortho practice, my lingual retainers sometimes pops off within a day. <laughs> and, um, you know, if the practice had a phone call about a lingual retainer, they're like, yep, I think I know who did it. <laughs> so these things, even though they look so easy, it's actually incredibly technique sensitive to get it to stick. And because I've had those problems, I think I've actually figured it out every little thing that you have to do. So now that when I do place lingual retainers, they basically last forever. And again, it does also come back to your treatment planning, which sounds crazy. But if your bite is still deep and you're trying to glue a fixed retainer on your upper centrals or your upper two to two, it doesn't matter how you glue this thing, it's going to be chewed off. So coming back to it all to the very, very start is you have to get the bite open to give you enough clearance. It's, it's similar to having restorative space for a crown, for example. You need that clearance first. So that's probably the first thing. The second is before D-band, I try and get the patients to go back to their dentist for a proper clean. I mean, there's no point in you taking the braces off and then doing a scaling clean, having blood everywhere. It, again, it won't stick. Um, or during, worse, trying to bond to calculus. Well, it will, work. it will stick to the calculus until the calculus falls off. <laughs> so those are more preparation stages. Um, when you're finishing, ideally trying to finish with everything done properly so that the wire adapts without having to bend it or involve a lab. That also helps just to get that maximum surface area. The fourth thing is probably your placement um, position. If it's glued right where that contact is, that has the best chance of survival. If you glue it too high when a patient is flossing, they're going to knock it. When they're chewing something, they're going to knock it. And then if you glue it really, really low on the gingiver, a lot of patients are trying to floss with the interdental brush and they end up yanking and pulling this thing out. So enough bite opening so you can get it on that really tight contact spot. Um, when you're actually doing it on the day, polishing the lingual surface with with whatever you have. So you, if you have a Air Profi Jet, um, or a sandblasting, you know, that's going to give you the nicest surface to work with. 
If you don't have that, um, I take a big, round, slow-speed burr, and I also burr the lingual surface just to remove whatever calculus, plaque, whatever is on there. Um, I etch for quite a long time. So I etch for about 40 to 60 seconds. I just really leave it on, make sure it gets in there. And then um, it's probably just your the, the bonding technique. The best way to bond this thing is a completely passive technique where you don't use floss or anything to hold it. Ideally, the finish is so smooth that you can just, um, you know, you can just dry it, put your bond on, put the flow composite on, and then just put the wire on and the whole thing just stays without having to use extra bits and pieces to push it in and get it to stay there. That's ideal because that way when you glue it, this wire is not going to be active and it is just happily going to stay on the back of the teeth. Um, if you are finding that you have to use floss or an instrument to try and adapt this wire while it's being cured, it's probably not going to stick very long. And if it does, it's going to cause the teeth to move. And is that because if you pull with the floss, you're essentially activating it so that when you finish your curing, the wire is trying to spring the teeth into, is that what's going on? Because exactly. I do use the floss technique because I thought I was adapting the wire as closely as possible to the surface of the tooth. How would you have it passively sit there? Like what composite do you use? To... <laughs> it's... um. It's more of a, this is why I need paper and pen sometimes. No, it's a podcast. You're going to have to use your words. It's easier to do it on the upper for that technique. So it's basically etching it, um, bone drying the tooth, using a little bit of bond, air drying the bond, and then using a flowable that is quite thick. So it's a little bit sticky almost. So... You dab a little bit of that flowable on the on all the teeth. Then you grab your wire, making sure it's dried properly, um, and just sit it on top of the flowable. And because the flowable is a little bit tacky, it's a little bit sticky, it holds the wire. Then I go back with the flowable again, and I just put flowable on top of the wire. So if you do it in that technique, it's a way to guarantee that the wire you're gluing is 100% passive and your gluing technique, it's not going to add any other stresses into the system. Okay. And if I'm doing this on the upper, I'm just imagining that the wire is just going to fall. Um, it's actually kind of hard. It's like you almost need your patient to tip their head head up and back. And... It's not too – I think it's not too difficult, but you have to work pretty quickly because the wire will start very, very slowly drifting. So when I put my wire on, when I've got it adapted, my assistant is there with the light cure unit. And as soon as I say go, she goes and sets it. Then you can add a little bit more composite on. So, you know, you have to have a really steady hand to put that wire in that right spot, let go very quickly without knocking it and curing it. So it's not a technique that um, I would advocate for the first time you're doing a lingual wire. The floss is 100% easier, but it's just something that I found that really reduces the breakage because you've, you, you know, you've done steps one to four correct. 
Now that execution, you're doing all you can to make sure it is a totally passive system. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Look, I think every um, dentist who's placed um, lingual or palatal wires knows the pain of, you know, that moment when you go, okay, bite together and there's a giant occlusal mark, occlusal bite paper mark right on the um, on top of the wire and you think, you start negotiating with yourself, saying, thinking, do they really need that lower palate, lower um, canine cusp? Maybe they don't. Um, so I think you're totally right about, about finishing that by thinking about, about the wire placement before when you're actually doing your clean check or doing your um, ortho planning. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if you do encounter that case where someone's biting and it bites on the wire, as tempting as it is to dismiss the patient or just go, no, it'll be okay, that's the type that will break within about a week. So I try and avoid it, but if that does happen, I just take that whole wire off and I try again and I put it in a different spot instead of trying to polish um, where you end up just polishing the actual metal wire down as well. Yeah, that's that's pretty heartbreaking thing to do, but I think we've all been there. I, I've been um, routinely doing an occlusal check before, like really, really carefully checking before I bond any upper wires. Bite down on paper, check, look at, with the mirror really carefully and go, all right, ha- approximately where do I need to position this so that I'm not going to have that problem where it doesn't fit. But um, I actually really, after this chat tonight, I might be less inclined to push it on the low on the upper teeth um if if it's moderate like if it's reasonably predictable with um removable retainers for the uppers yeah for all those um, reasons you said um two more quick questions zigzag or no i prefer no uh the zigzag wires are good but they don't stop the teeth from, um, what's the right word, from tipping buckle lingually. So it holds rotations and it holds the intercanine space quite well. But the tooth can always tip a little bit. And that's the inherent weakness of the wire because you've got such a long span. It's not as strong in that dimension. Um, so I would say No. I have had a lot of patients request it and I basically say, look, this might be a problem, but if you definitely want this, we'll do it. But if you run into this problem in the future, you know, you've been warned. I actually have, I agree with you, but my reason is people think that zigzag wires will be helpful for oral hygiene because they can floss through the contact point. But to me, it's not common to get caries down on your lower anteriors anyway. It's a low-risk caries zone, but it is a calculus zone and you don't, you know, a zigzag wire does also have more surface area to attract calculus um, buildup. So to me, it doesn't really make sense to allow this space for interproximal flossing where there's not really a risk of or there's very minimal risk of um, lower anterior interproximal caries, but there's such a high risk of having perio issues. So that's my that's my oral hygiene 
reason for it. Okay, and last question, lab-made wires or do you prefer to um, do them yourself? I generally bend it myself. <laughs> Just a little bit easier. It takes me more time to take an impression, wait for it to set, um, send it to the lab, get it back, all those things. It's actually much, much quicker if I just eyeball how long that wire is and eyeball if it needs any bends. Usually with the finishes, I don't usually need to bend for the upper. For the lower, sometimes the canines are quite thick, buckle lingually, and you've got those incisors that's really, really thin. So for that, just grab a bird beak plier and <laughs> two seconds and it's bent. Okay. So I usually how do you bend um uh like how do you actually get it perfect? Um I think it just comes down to a lot of practice. So a lot of people take an impression and then they try and bend it out of the mouth. So I think that's a good way to start is you have that stone model there, there's no time pressure. Um and you just grab whatever your favorite plier is and bend it to adapt to the model to a point where it just it's such a perfect fit that you don't need floss. Um, after you know doing so many of these, I generally just do it on the day. I see the patient, um, cut the wire so it's a little bit long, and I just put my bends in and just really quickly glue it in. <laughs> so I, I think don't this usually... is one we have to observe. <laughs> I, don't, I usually don't involve the lab with my um, fixed retaining wires. Very, very rarely do I ever request them to make anything for me. Yeah. Well, look, I loved your story about how, you know, at the very beginning, oh, wires, retainer wires were, were not, you know, you felt like you needed to master, you had a reason to wanting to master it. So um, thank you so much for sharing all of those really excellent tips on how to not only obtain great author results but to maintain them for the long term thank you so much for listening to the dental head start podcast i genuinely hope this is helping you become a better dentist so if you like what you're hearing, make sure you subscribe on your podcast player and I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go to social media and share something that you've appreciated from us with one of your friends. That's how the word gets out. That's how more people gain and benefit from what we're doing. And if you're a dental student or a graduate and you want to get a head start, go to dentalheadstart.com to find everything we're doing to help dental students become great dentists.